0: Amen. You may be seated. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 3 this morning. Uh, Gallup, maybe you've seen this study that was recently released at the end of last month. Um, that showed that membership in the church uh, synagogue or mask or mask or mosque had fallen below a majority for the first time in the history of our nation membership regular membership in church synagogue or mosque has fallen below 50 percent now they only started tracking this uh, in the last eight decades uh, so We don't necessarily have the history prior to that, but in all likelihood it was stronger, healthier church membership prior to that. So I would say in the first time, we we now have fewer people in our nation uh, than, uh, fewer people belonging to a place of worship than who don't. And so that's concerning, right? The decline seems to clearly represent an increasing number of folks who are abandoning their faith in God altogether. They're not just shifting their, uh, their, the direction of their faith, they're just abandoning that faith. The line held steady really between 37 and 99. It started in 1937 at 73%, and then it only dropped to 70% by 99 uh, but since '99, the decline has increased speed, losing an average of 1% each year. And so that in 2020, just 47% of Americans said they belonged to a church, synagogue, or mosque. So there's certainly a, a refining taking place within the American church. Uh, at the end of last year, Tom Rayner suggested that church attendance... And giving will be down overall by 20 to 30 percent just across the nation. Furthermore, he said that the new definition of a large church will be 250 in attendance rather than 400, and that they just mean the top 10% of churches in the nation. So, although a portion of that decline is due to sort of a minimization of formal church membership. There are a lot of churches that just simply don't have membership and so if you're answering that question and you're thinking of a formal kind of membership and you may you may very well be a regular attender at a church but not a member of that church that might make up some five six seven percent of that decline which is significant and something to address but an even greater proportion of that is you know the vast majority of it is due to an increasing number of people who no longer have a, re- a religious preference at all and they take that uh survey and it asks them what their religious preference is they they check the box none it doesn't really matter uh one way is not better than the other and there's just an indifference about religion in general and so therefore they are unlikely to attend anywhere and to commit anywhere. And I believe much of the decline in terms of the Christian church is the result of pastors who are too busy speaking to those outside the church, and in all their attempts to prove their relevance, they fail to equip those who are actually present within the church. And so by catering to the felt needs of the culture, trying to attract and draw more people in actually leave their own congregations vulnerable to the culture's corrupting influence. The central point here in this passage I believe is that that Paul is making is, is that the Philippian church needed to be on guard. On guard against false teachers who might have already come through Philippi or were probably on their way. They had already gone through several other churches that Paul had written to, like Galatia. And so Philippi, being in that same region, might have been expecting a visit at some point, or Paul was expecting a visit of these false teachers. And so he was concerned for that, and he's encouraging them to be on guard. He was concerned that they would remain steadfast in their commitment to the gospel. The Galatians had abandoned it. And Paul had to rebuke them and call them to repentance. We don't see that same language in Philippi. So it doesn't appear that they've had an impact on the church yet, but Paul's warning them about it to prepare, to prepare them for that. So the Philippians are facing the same threat that the Galatians faced. again, Paul's letter to the Galatians came after they had already deserted Christ. They were following after a different gospel, Paul says. And he says, that's not even in the gospel at all. But He was calling them to return to the grace of the true gospel that they had originally received from the apostles. So clearly that was not the situation here in Philippi, as we've seen so much joy and encouragement in his language. Right? He has a wonderful, close relationship with the congregation in Philippi. But he does recognize the value of, and the, of the need for warning. He knows that in order to uh, promote the gospel, they must also preserve it against error, against attack. And so the gospel is what brings unity, and he's called them to that unity, and so in order to maintain that unity, they must also defend it. Right, defend perversions of the gospel. And so it would appear that the church in America is in a similar predicament right now. All right, we face the unyielding threat of a hostile world that does the bidding of a defeated and furious foe. And so in light of that, Paul calls the Christian community to joyfully embrace the task of preserving the gospel, the true gospel, from satanic perversions. And those perversions abound. So let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding this passage before we read it together. Heavenly Father, we thank you again that you have given us your word, that you've given us this opportunity to be encouraged this morning by your word. We pray that you would be glorified as you open our eyes and open our ears help us to see and to hear and to trust and believe that this word is precisely what we need to hear help us not to be thinking of all the other people that need to hear this as we so oftentimes do help us to correct our own wayward hearts this morning To see where we might need to repent where we might need to fall on our knees before you and once again trust in you alone lord there is um this is a pressing need in our time to defend and preserve the truth of the gospel and so raise our awareness of that truth give us a joy and a And a passion for that truth. That we might, like Christ, defend it. And whatever that calls us to. Whether that be to encourage and comfort or to convict and rebuke. Lord, may your word, by your spirit, do that work in our hearts this morning. For your glory we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. This is God's holy word. So the first thing in your outline, if you're following along, is to be glad in the Lord. Be glad. It's another way we can translate this phrase: rejoice. This word, rejoice. It's about being glad, but it's a it's deeper than just a superficial happiness. It's it's something that that is rooted in the gospel. It's something that is rooted in the truth that God reveals to us. And so after sharing this encouraging news at the end of chapter two that he would be uh, sending uh, Timothy to them and Epaphroditus, who most likely was the one who brought this letter to the church in Philippi. So as he's describing the work of Epaphroditus, they would already be experiencing the joy of having him among them um, and, and, uh, and be, being cheered by his presence. But they also were looking forward now to Timothy's fellowship with them in the near future and so he's now following that up and he says rejoice finally brothers rejoice rejoice in the lord the question is not so much if that's a a proper response to the news he's already shared but is he now transitioning even here into a new thought Um, some have suggested that his use of the word finally there is 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 a, a beginning of a conclusion And then he takes two chapters to finally conclude that could be the case i certainly am guilty of that at times uh of telling you okay in conclusion and then 30 minutes later you're finally done but probably what he's doing is just transitioning he's just pointing out that he's he's moving from one topic to another and so i think that even here what we should see primarily is that the joy that he's exhorting them to experience and to feel and to and to enjoy is part of His warning. It's part of what he's about to say in his warning. So it's leading them. It's sort of the first step in that. And I'll make that, I'll try to make that clear as we move forward here. But the, so the question is not whether he's exhorting, he, uh, is not Paul's exhortation to rejoice, but what does it have to do with the warning that follows? And so our experience of, of true joy, I think depends upon our grasp of true religion. And so that's why a commitment to discipleship is so crucial, so central to the growth, uh, to our growth in the Lord. See, on the one hand, Paul wants his readers to know that he's not burdened by uh, the task of discipling them as his apostle, right? As, as their apostle, right? As an apostle, he, he knows he's sent for this task, to shepherd them, to disciple them, and encourage them. And he wants them to not not feel like it's a burden upon him to write to them. Even if he's writing something similar to what he's already shared with them. It's not like he's going, how many times do I have to tell you this? I've said it a thousand times. No, he's saying, rejoice. It's not a burden for me to write the same things to you. It's not a burden to continue to exhort you and to encourage you. I know that it's for your good. It's for your safety. And so on the one hand, Paul wants his readers to know that he's not burdened by the task of discipleship. Even if he has to keep repeating himself, his redundant encouragement doesn't bother him. He knows it's how God preserves their faith against false teachers. But he also recognizes the potential here. I think, for his disciples to grow complacent and indifferent toward their training, which I think is partly what we're seeing in the American church, right? There's an indifference to religion in general, a complacency on the part of the disciples, the part of those who are receiving this letter. And so he's in, exhorting them to rejoice in the Lord, to recognize the value of discipleship. Now, think about this, when you... <laughs> When you exercise, um, generally you do so not because you just love it, right? Like I just love doing push-ups and pull-ups and sit-ups and just making myself sore to where I can't walk afterwards. We don't do it because of the joy in the moment, right? And because of that, we rarely stick to it. In fact, the people who, who stick to it, What's the difference? They actually enjoy it. There's something about it that that is fulfilling, right? That's satisfying. That that healthy movement and exercise is good, and they enjoy not just the results of what it provides, which is oftentimes what motivates us initially. Is I I want to look like that, and so I know I need to do this. But it's actually a transition from thinking about the results to the progress to the process. All of the the work that is required, the pain that is involved, there's an appreciation for the pain. So when church attendance is little more than a dull requirement, we will soon lose interest entirely. It's like we lose our interest in our exercise, right? Paul knows that his instruction and his warning actually protects the church from a hostile environment that constantly competes for her affection. And so we can easily grow discouraged by the bleak prospects of the future. When we turn on the news, we look at the statistics from Gallup and we go, man, what what can we do? It's just we're just a ticking time bomb. It's going to explode. It, it's going to implode at some point. Can't really do anything to help it. Well, we know we can trust in Christ's promises to us that the gates of hell will not ultimately prevail against her, and that God is preserving and protecting his church. And so we wants to prioritize the things that he prioritizes. And so at a time where the church needs bold leaders, we can be discouraged because we look out and we, we find them silent on many of these matters, these cultural issues that are dividing the church. The membership of many churches, I believe, is in decline and disarray because the leaders themselves are distracted and divided on so many issues. And so the first exhortation here Paul gives in this transitional passage is a theme that we've already grown accustomed to. We've heard him talk about joy, rejoicing, something like nine times He said in verse 4 of chapter 1, verse 18, verse 25, chapter 2, verse 2, 17 and 18, as well as 28 and 29. You can go back and look at those. But over and over, we keep seeing this theme impact all the various topics that he's talked about so far. And once again, it it impacts the way that he warns the people. Christians must never lose the joy of their salvation. They ought to be able to rejoice regardless of the trials they are facing. In fact, rejoicing in the Lord is so important that Paul places it before watching. Before he tells them to stand guard, he reminds them to rejoice. Because you can stand guard in a way that is little better than being indifferent. You might be aware of it, but when there's no joy, you're going to lose interest. It's not going to last. Joy is part of how God preserves our faith, part of how he preserves his church. And so before you buy a shelf load of books on subjects you feel inadequate to talk about, and I'm pointing at myself here, be sure that you're filled with the joy of the lord rather than the fear of man that's not to say don't read the books but do it from a place of joy joy and rest in christ and his promises and then because of that you're motivated properly to understand how you might engage the culture don't engage the culture out of fear because what are we going to do we're losing so many people the church is going to die. It's not. See, Paul's not suggesting that we put on a big naive grin and act as if nothing's ever wrong in the world. There's never any tension or problems. He's not suggesting, don't worry, be happy. As if your joy is rooted in the ability to escape all hardship and pain and suffering. No, he's encouraging them to have the proper perspective from which they then can warn others. He's encouraging them to follow in his example here, once again, as he's doing. His joy is compelling him now to warn others about the danger that they face. And so there's a major difference here between warning others out of fear or bitterness And speaking the truth in love out of joy and contentment. The former is filled with animosity, but the latter is the fruit of the Spirit. And so one is is really the product of a man-centered purpose. The other is focused on prioritizing God, the centrality of the gospel, the work of the Spirit in our lives. And so I want to make this personal to you. Do you rejoice in being equipped as followers of Christ? Does the opportunity to be strengthened in your faith, to be built up under the preaching of God's word, does that bring you joy? I pray that you would experience an increasing interest in the doctrine that leads you into a sweeter doxology to praise of god because that's what the world ultimately needs is to rightly come before their maker and worship him and so if we come and leave out of drudgery and our worship is dry who wants to be a part of that But again, it's not something we can just manufacture. May the leadership never tire of, of guarding the doctrine and practice of this church. It's, it's our calling. It's our responsibility to protect the flock from corrupt teaching. To protect the, the pulpit in that sense. Many shepherds, I think, uh, tend to avoid this task. Uh, unlike Paul, they do consider it a burden. To write the same things to their people to say the same things and instead of coming to their congregation with joy they come with with a root of bitterness discontentment with the reactions that they're seeing or not seeing so it only leads into a man-centered preoccupation many shepherds avoid that task unlike paul they consider it a burden to warn about heirs that are on their way. And, And so that means that they are following the culture really toward a goal that destroys Christ's mission. See, joy reveals just how sincerely we understand the gospel of Jesus. And let us meditate upon the sympathy of our Lord who died in order to give us life. When we consider the resurrection life that we partake of in Christ, the joy of the Lord will permeate our words and our deeds as it should. But he's giving that encouragement, that exhortation here to rejoice in the Lord in order to ultimately focus on this rebuke, this correction or warning. Again, it's not a correction of the people who are reading him, but it's a correction of those that he's warning his readers about. And so rejoicing here is not interrupted by what follows. It's protected by a proper awareness of the opponents of the gospel. It's because we want to preserve that joy that we must be aware of the opponents. And that's your second point in the outline. Beware of opponents, verse 2. Here he says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. So Paul's tone takes a decided shift at this verse. He has had a different tone throughout the first two chapters, even when he's addressing people that he disagrees with, people who have ulterior motives that he's discouraged by. But he says, I rejoice and I will rejoice because the gospel is being proclaimed. Here, He takes a very serious tone. One might even accuse him of losing his winsome qualities. He doesn't mince words in his warning of error. However, it seems clear when comparing this letter to the Philippian believers to his letter to the Galatians, that he is providing a warning rather than a correction of compromise that's already taken place. I've already mentioned that but it seems here that paul has one particular group in mind but he describes them in three phrases three different phrases and those phrases they they don't lack any sense of or, or they do lack any sense of subtlety or nuance they're direct they're plain and they're bold statements he says beware of the dogs now Paul is not referring, as we might think, as children might think of their own dog, right? This lovable, cuddly, and loyal companion who's always wanting to be with them. No, dogs roam about looking for anything to eat, including dead animals, feces, even their own vomit. They still tend to do that, right? This is, which is why you need to be careful, uh, letting them lick your face and get up too close and personal with your dog. They still eat those same things. They still delight in those same things. right? But dogs at this point weren't pets. They were wild. They were ferocious. You had to have something to protect yourself against them if, if one came in your path. And so it's also a, a very offensive term that Paul does not employ lightly. He knows by using this language that he would offend those who he's speaking about. He's deeply concerned with the divisive teaching of his opponents. And so he can relate them to the same error or warrant or the same threat that a dog would pose in someone's path. He goes on to say, beware of evil workers. Again, not mincing words there. Beware of these satanic perversions of the gospel. Those diligently spreading their false teaching, which denies the completed work of Christ, which suggests that you need to do some work in order to justify yourself before God. Beware of them. Beware of those who advocate mutilation. Uh, this is actually a, a play on words here. Because the word for circumcision is peritome, which we find in the next verse. Peritome, and he calls it mutilation, katatome. He's, he's making a play on words. The Judaizers would have been teaching in these other churches, or in this region, They were teaching that salvation not only required faith in Christ, but that circumcision was also necessary. At the Jerusalem Council in, in Acts 15, the apostles acknowledged that there was no longer any spiritual significance attached to physical circumcision. And so it's nothing more than mutilation, Paul says. But there is a spiritual significance attached to that sign right, that, that he says, so he, so he goes in the next verse to say we are the circumcision, and we'll talk about that in a moment. He's not denigrating the, the, what the sign pointed to, which was belonging to Christ being cut off from the world, but he's talking about the physical act of circumcision, saying that it has no value So beware of those who are making it a part of your salvation, suggesting that unless you are circumcised, you cannot be saved. Again, he doesn't mince words. They're all very strong phrases that would have been offensive to the Judaizers. John Calvin said, A dog barks when his master is attacked. I would be a coward if I saw that God's truth is attacked and yet would remain silent. Holdrich Zwingli said, The Christian life, then, is a battle so sharp and full of danger that effort can nowhere be relaxed without loss. John Knox said, those churches that deny the chief article of the faith, which is justification by faith alone, are no churches at all, but synagogues of Satan. And Martin Luther, we could choose from a number of quotes similar to this, but I'll just read one. Speaking to Erasmus, he says, From you, my dear Erasmus, let me obtain this request, that just as I bear with your ignorance in these matters, so you in turn will bear with my lack of eloquence, as he's about to blast him for his false doctrine. So these are just a few examples of Reformed writings that lack a winsomeness that seems to be so coveted Among modern pastors, the reformers, much like Paul, were far more concerned with safeguarding the truth than being winsome. And I'm not suggesting that winsome is never appropriate, that we should always just be harsh. Paul is not always harsh, but he's harsh where it's appropriate. He doesn't back down from it. And although the world is oftentimes filled with hostility toward the church, our greatest opponents frequently come from within the church. We've seen this repeatedly in Scripture. Paul's concern in Asia Minor was that his opponents would lead believers astray with a false gospel. In other words, they would enter the church and corrupt its teaching. False teachers always replace faith with works. They promise justification for a few key actions. And so it's the task of the Christian community to preserve the truth, to preserve the true gospel from numerous perversions that come about in every age. The church can never let down her guard until she reaches triumphant glory. Scripture tells us the church must remain militant uses the language of spiritual warfare, of wearing the armor of God. And so that includes men who are watchful and ready to warn about threatening scenarios. Paul had a a particular threat in mind, as we've just described, of the Judaizers. He was writing to these particular believers, but the principles of, of militant, watchfulness remain just as important in every age and we see it maybe more prevalent than ever our need to be watchful i think this responsibility does fall primarily upon the leadership of the church both in the context of the church community but also in the the leadership within the home um Before God created Eve, he gave the task for Adam to work and keep the garden, to work it and keep it. And that prelapsarian responsibility or that that responsibility that was given to him before the fall carries into his marriage and his family. He was given the, the primary task of providing for their basic needs and protecting them against the threats that they might face. This is what we've been talking about at our men's breakfast every month, the responsibility we have within our homes. Now, that doesn't mean that all of us need to be poring over the newspaper every day, but it does mean that we invest in the lives of those God has placed under our physical and spiritual care. We don't need to warn about every potential opponent, just the ones that are knocking on our door. And right now there are a few glaring threats knocking on the doors of most denominations. And so husbands and fathers, you too should make every effort to engage in conversation with your wives and children about the challenges that they face in their spiritual maturity. What are the threats that, that they face? What threatens their faith probably has absolutely nothing to do with what threatens our denomination. I mean, I I recognize that in some cases that there might be some overlap there. But the only way we can know is by asking questions about spiritual health. Diagnosing the, the spiritual health of our spouse, our wives, and our children. And so, in the midst of this, you may need to pause and examine whether you are part of the problem in your home. Do you contribute to their spiritual complacency by your own lack of maturity? And it takes us back to the first verse Do you delight in your own spiritual growth? So that through that and from that place of joy, you might then exhort and warn and encourage and rebuke and correct your family out of love. Are you rejoicing in the Lord with your spouse and children so that you know the struggles that they're currently facing? See, the joyful preservation of the gospel will at times involve vehement correction of anyone who threatens its purity and progress. And if you rejoice in the Lord, you will look out for any opponent who seeks to corrupt the salvation that brings such joy. And you will do so with reference to the culture as well as those who might threaten the joy of your own home. Christ's righteous anger shows us the importance of preserving the truth over niceness at times. And Jesus was full of grace and truth, according to John 1.14. It wasn't truth over grace. It wasn't grace over truth. It's full of truth and grace at all times. And so when his opponents attacked one of those qualities, Jesus was not subtle in his rebuke of them. Take the example of him flipping tables in the temple and driving out the merchants with a whip. He was cleansing the temple of all that corrupted its proper use as a house of prayer. And so when communion with God was hindered by what was taking place, Christ's compassion for the vulnerable demanded a strong correction of those who were abusing them. See, with the help of the Spirit, we can protect the faith of the vulnerable filled with the grace and truth that comes from Christ. And so surely that's one of the reasons that God has provided the church. We will close with this last thought and I'll try to be brief here. One of the ways that we preserve the gospel is by committing to the body of Christ. And so the first point is to be glad in the Lord. Secondly, to beware of opponents. And then thirdly, to belong in community, to belong in community. He says this in Verse 3, we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. We are the circumcision. You can look at uh, similar phrases in Galatians 3 and Romans 2. But again, the Judaizers promoted nothing more than mutilation, but we represent the true circumcision the reality that the sign of circumcision always pointed to. We are the heirs of God's covenant promises because we worship by the Spirit and we glory in Christ and not in the flesh. Worship by the Spirit. uh, On the one hand, we recognize who we worship and we come before Him with reverence and preparation. But on the other hand, we come through the agency of the Spirit, completely and utterly dependent upon Him. He leads us and enables us to worship in the right manner. So That's why we pause the way we do before we enter in, we encourage you to prepare your hearts even before coming, to rightly think about these things and then to depend upon the Spirit to lead us in worship. We glory in Christ Jesus. He is the one who, whom we boast in, not ourselves. Jesus is the reason we're able to rejoice in all circumstances, and so we put no confidence in the flesh. Because we're boasting in Christ alone, we have no reason to point out any distinguishing features about ourselves. No one is superior to another because of their physical description within the church. We're all to be recognized as needing... The mercy and grace of Christ and to fall short of the glory that God calls us to, so we depend upon him. We all are called to repent, and it has nothing to do with our physical characteristics. True worship reflects dependence upon God, and so we don't place our confidence in any work of the flesh, whether it be circumcision or any pious action. William Hendrickson explains, in broad terms, flesh is anything apart from Christ on which one bases his hope for salvation. So we place our confidence in God and his complete plan of redemption. So ironically, I think here, even though it is from within the Christian community that our, our fiercest threats oftentimes arise, we are never called to abandon that community altogether. On the contrary, we're called to recognize why we belong. And Christians are called to diligently protect the centrality of worshiping by the Holy Spirit through Christ Jesus. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And I dare not trust the sweetest frame but wholly lean on Jesus' name. He's a solid rock on which we stand. And so, in order to maintain that purpose, we will be called to state some harsh warnings from time to time. We cannot shy away from that. The worldly culture might oppose you at every step, but you belong to a community of saints who receive their strength from God. Our purpose and confidence are restored with new mercies every morning and we gather for worship every week and as we do so we are challenged and equipped to practice our faith in a manner that honors God throughout the week so now is not the time to grow slack in your faith as the cultural war continues to disrupt the church we need strong thriving communities who are steadfast in worship and uncompromising on the gospel As those who put confidence in the flesh, we, as those who put no confidence in the flesh, we recognize our need for spiritual support that cannot be found online, cannot be found virtually. We need the support that God has provided in the church who gather to rejoice in the redeeming work of his son. And so all of this begins, first and foremost, with the preservation of the gospel in your own hearts, we recognize how quickly our minds and our hearts are distracted and discouraged when they're devoted, uh, when they are not devoted to the Word and fellowship, sacraments and prayer—those ordinary means of grace that we read about in Acts chapter two, verse forty-two. And so, it's precisely because we put so little confidence in our flesh that we need the spiritual nourishment of God's ordinary means of grace, which he provides in the context of the gathered church. And so we need the regular reminder that spirit-filled worship provides. We need the reminder that Jesus Christ is worthy of receiving glory because he took on flesh to ransom us. And so may we respond to that truth now with joy that he provides. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for the shelter that we find in you. Lord, you are transcendent and yet you come, you condescend to bring us to yourself as children to a father and we can come before you and receive Mercy and grace in our time of need. We can come to your throne of grace. We can cast our cares upon you knowing that you care for us. Knowing that when our thoughts are anxious we can come to a Father who calms our fears. Who restores our hope. Who renews our joy. So Lord, help us to respond in obedience to that now. I us to come to find that refuge and shelter that we so desperately need. For your glory we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, I invite you to stand as we sing our psalm of response. Psalm number 91B. Who with God most high finds shelter? Psalm 91B.